It's early February 2001. MSF Holland's Kenny Gluck has just been released after over three weeks being held hostage. I had written a handwritten message, which I managed to send out with a friend of his. So MSF actually knew I was released. The message said, the Russians now have me, not the Chechens, follow up with the Russians. So MSF was already putting pressure on the Russians, saying, we know you have him, where is he? Then on the second day, they let me make some phone calls. So I called MSF and I called my father just to say I'm in a Russian army base. MSF's operations have been closed down in Chechnya in response to Kenny's kidnapping, but the teams are now looking to restart their aid work in the country. The Russian Federation's authorities, the pro-Chechen administration and the new Ingush administration are keen for the thousands of Chechen refugees to leave Ingushetia and go back to Chechnya. They step up their policy of enforced repatriation by putting pressure on humanitarian organisations to stop helping in Ingushetia so the Chechens return. Meanwhile, they subject the refugees to a daily regime of terror, as described in this article written for the National Post by MSF Canada's executive director. The Russian army has installed a state of terror, perpetuating acts of violence. Arbitrary executions and police sweeps, arrests, disappearances and extortion. Russian forces have transformed Chechnya into a vast ghetto where every civilian is a suspect and freedom of movement is denied. Even the sick and wounded are prevented from passing through military checkpoints. On the 14th of February, the head of the pro-Russian Chechen administration, Ahmed Kadyrov, announces that humanitarian organisations will no longer be allowed to operate independently in Chechnya. The Russian state-owned news agency, RIA Novosti, reports. Kadyrov explained that some of the agencies just use their support to refugees as an umbrella, but in reality they, quote, speculate on the problems in Chechnya and on other people's blood. He said that humanitarian assistance from the international organisations doesn't reach the Republic. At the beginning of March, the United Nations Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, known as OCHA, asks all NGOs to sign a protocol agreement that would mean humanitarian activities in the North Caucasus were subject to the control of the FSB, the Russian Federation's internal security service. All MSF sections refuse. In response, the Russian authorities ramp up their campaign of misinformation in the media. A few days later, the French section's programme manager meets with the Kremlin representative responsible for human rights, a man named Viktor Kalamanov. MSF turns down the Russians' offer of an armed escort for their team in Chechnya, telling him that the MSF hasn't decided on whether it'll start operations in the region yet. The next day, the Russian press agency Interfax quotes Kalamanov as saying the exact opposite. The meeting was held in a constructive atmosphere, and the Médecins Sans Frontières representative agreed with Russia's position concerning the rules of behaviour for international and non-governmental organisations working in Chechnya. MSF makes an official, but not public, denial of these claims. At an intersectional meeting for the North Caucasus the next day, MSF staff speculate that given the timing of the Interfax press release, Kalamanov must have called the wire agency as soon as their meeting with him had finished. The MSF France programme manager also says he recognises Kalamanov's wording and feels the Kremlin representative knew exactly what he was doing. 
These sorts of tactics remind MSF that it must be ready to face Russian hostility, not just on the ground in the North Caucasus, but also in the press. Despite the need to have armed guards when working in Chechnya, MSF continues to make plans to restart programs in the Republic. But for now, with the risk of kidnapping and assault still high, most teams have to do so-called remote control management from bases in Ingushetia and Moscow. Given these risks, can MSF justify their limited operational presence with the need to speak out about the persecution of the Chechens? And in regards to Russia, is it realistic to rely on raising the awareness of other UN member states via their public's opinion when dealing with a superpower that has a veto at the UN Security Council and a tradition of restrictions on freedom of speech? As 2001 drags on, MSF grapples with these dilemmas in order to get the Chechen's plight into the media and to the table of diplomatic discussions at institutions around the world. Today, we say enough. Even war has rules. Stop the bombing of defenseless civilians in Chechnya. be a scientific research for that. We know that those people are dying. This is Speaking Out, War Crimes and the Politics of Terror in Chechnya, 1994 to 2004, a podcast by MSF. I'm Nick Owen. Episode 7, Anti-Terrorist Rhetoric. MSF sections restart their programmes in Ingushetia, yet still the debate over whether to bring back international staff to restart MSF programmes in Chechnya continues. MSF Holland employs an additional director of operations who visits Chechnya in May 2001. Their words have been voiced up. After Kenny's kidnapping and release, there was an internal review of security, and one of the conclusions reached was that the operations director in charge of these programmes should change. I offered to take on the job. I started in March, April 2001, and visited Chechnya for the first time in May 2001 to restart her activities. There was little internal debate at the time. A minority group said, there will always be risks in Chechnya. We shouldn't be taking them anymore. We shouldn't be working in countries like this. But most people agreed that we should, but with a different approach. The idea was to be reasonable and at the same time highly ambitious. Our plans for development were very focused on a presence in Chechnya, with an initial evaluation stage run from Moscow without international staff in Ingushetia, then a second stage with teams coming and going between Moscow and Nazaran on and off for periods of two or three weeks. An irregular presence, but spending real time there. They carried out security evaluations around Ingushetia. We had accommodation built for these international staff in Nazaran. Then we started considering access to Chechnya. But we wrote it down in black and white so it was totally clear that whilst we accepted working in remote control, we didn't find it satisfactory. And we aimed to end up with an international staff presence. There was no question of reorganising everything to work in remote control. This was a temporary setup and not an objective in itself at all. While most sections at MSF agree that remote control management must be only temporary in Chechnya, the Swiss section takes a different approach. 
They're the only MSF section with international staff on the ground running programs in Dagestan on Chechnya's eastern border. They soon start a program to refurbish a maternity clinic in Chechnya, plus another to set up mobile surgeries in the surrounding health centres. The director of operations at MSF Switzerland. We had their words voiced up. My predecessor was the one who took the decision to go to Chechnya. He went on an exploratory mission in February 2001. It was his idea on how MSF and how the Swiss section should develop. I think it was a bit hurried, but that's a different story. When he left his job in 2001, I was appointed operations director. We took over the project, and in the end, the programme worked quite well in Hasaviet. We were supporting health outposts near the Chechen border, and we had taken a first step into Chechnya and Gurdamesh. From then on, we started looking in the south-southeast of the region to find what was needed. The rebels had moved way down south. I remember that we did two or three exploratory trips in the less controlled areas, but the Russian command of the south was already very strong. The Swiss teams aren't speaking out on what they find there. Instead, they're working discreetly providing medical aid. But the other MSF sections think that MSF Switzerland's presence in the region is dangerous, particularly in Dagestan, where NGOs are offered no protection. MSF Holland's North Caucasus coordinator, Mikhail Hoffman. When I arrived in Russia, uh, MSF Belgium and MSF France were also based in Moscow, and they were all saying MSF Switzerland, they're basically based in Dagestan, and then they go into Chechnya with tanks. Hearing this, I invited myself to visit Dagestan and MSF Switzerland gave me a grand tour of their programs. There were a few things about Dagestan that I thought were a bit tricky. Number one, in Dagestan, except for the Chechen internal displaced in the border region, the whole dynamics of, of it really has little to do with Chechnya. And in my view, was about 10 times more complex than Chechnya itself. Chechnya, of course, was a very dangerous place, but it was very easy to understand. You had maybe two or three different parties on the rebel side, and you had one, or let's call it one and a half party, on the non-rebel side. The relations between those factions were relatively clear, and where the main zones of influence were on the map was also quite clear. You could deal with that. In Dagestan, it was a complete soup. Hundreds of different tribes speaking at least 40 different languages that have been at each other's throats for at least 2,000 years. The program was set up relatively quickly and with very few people on the ground and a rotating coordinator. With this setup, there was no way you could have any idea of what was going on. When Mihail visits, the Swiss are just starting to expand their operations into the hill tribes on the southern border of Chechnya. Amazon Switzerland went into a complete clan zone, centuries of clan warfare and almost impossible to negotiate access. It was an extremely remote region, which means that if you look at medical needs, you would find them, because there are hardly any new good functioning clinics or anything. And the justification for MSF activities was not that clear. It was more like, okay, we are in Dagestan, so it's nice to do something for the Dagestan people elsewhere, which is fair enough. But the region that you choose is one of the most dangerous in the whole Caucasus, far more dangerous than Chechnya. On Dagestan, MSF Switzerland said they got security guarantees, but I could not see how they could guarantees when doing mobile clinics in a region where every kilometer you go into a different clan area. So it's an extremely dangerous place to be in. Meanwhile, the living conditions and level of violence for the Chechen population left in their homeland is getting worse. 
the disappearance, torture and summary executions by the pro-Russian authorities, or sweeps as they're often called, are becoming more commonplace and even banal. In response, the most radical pro-independent groups are organising more murderous attacks. The international community regularly speaks about its disapproval of the violence, but no sanctions are given. In February, the European Parliament calls for a ceasefire, NGOs access to refugees and the opening of negotiations. Le Monde and the French news agency AFP reports. The members of the European Parliament insist on the need for an independent committee to investigate the allegations of war crimes committed by the two parties in the conflict. On the 22nd of April 2001, the UN Commission on Human Rights adopts a resolution tabled by the European Union condemning the brutal conduct of the Russian war in Chechnya. However, during the session, the Russian delegates try to obstruct Omar Khranbiev, the current health minister of the Chechen independence government, and not officially on the list of speakers. Le Monde reports... Mr. Hanbiev told of his experience as a doctor, speaking under the aegis of the Transnational Radical Party, a non-governmental organisation which had given him five minutes of their speaking time. He was careful not to raise issues which are directly political or concerned with sovereignty. However, even this was too much for the representatives of Moscow, who interrupted him four times with comments about official terminology. Then, purely and simply, had the chairman prevent him from speaking before he could finish what he had to say. Before he's forced to stop speaking, Omar Hranbiev estimates that more than 20,000 people have disappeared in Chechnya and that about as many are currently being detained there. Government figures from eight months earlier estimate that there were 87,000 dead, 200,000 wounded and more than 30% of the population chased from their homes. 90% of hospital facilities have been destroyed. He paints a devastating picture of life in Chechnya since the start of this second war. In early July 2001, news of massacres in Chechnya is made public. The pro-Russian Chechen administrator, Ahmed Kadyrov, accuses Russian troops of targeting civilians and the next day the Kremlin announces a preliminary inquiry into the accusations. A head nurse in a Chechen town called Cernovodsk tells an MSF France medical coordinator and field coordinator about seeing towns being cleansed by Russian soldiers. The MSF staff email colleagues with the nurse's testimony. Yesterday, operatives from RUBOP, the anti-terrorist branch of the Interior Ministry, arrived in their small town and started encircling the town with helicopters, cars and troops. They entered houses the hospital and the camps, and rounded up 800 people who they then took to a place to check their identity and register them on a computer database. While rounding up the victims, they pillaged the houses. Televisions, tape players, and what they couldn't take, they threatened to destroy unless they received payment. Mistreated people, broke window panes in the hospital, broke down doors, and opened boxes of medicines looking for hidden money. Then they probably carried out the interrogations and torture by electrocution. The victims could easily be heard, civilians who hadn't been arrested. At a UN OCHA meeting, the same MSF staff listened to the testimony of another of the victims from Cernovodsk. 
She says that some of them had been taken by bus to another town, while others had been made to sign a discharge paper and were then sent to the mosque and forced to undress and put their clothes on their heads. After hearing the woman's testimony, the two MSF staff expressed their shock at seeing the UN meeting's chairman move on to the next topic as though nothing's happened, despite the huge risks the witness has taken in making a statement like that. Their email update to colleagues continues. Nobody reacted. Not even us, as we were stunned by the indifference of the Ocha guy. We have given you a summary of what happened and now we need to make some things clearer. We wanted to let you know about the discrepancy between the seriousness of the events and the lack of consideration given to situations like this by the UN representatives. We have also just learned this evening that the Rubop have apparently surrounded the Sputnik camp at Septovskaya. The information needs to be checked as it's astonishing given that the hunger strikers are near to Sputnik and visited regularly by journalists. So there's something not quite right. Perhaps it's a rumour. What should we do, given this situation? Go and bang on the table at Ocha? Take a look around Sputnik? Meet Ayushev, the English president? Hassle Human Rights Watch? What seems the most relevant? This might seem a stupid question to you, but we're a bit dazed by it all. Speaking later, a Caucasus MSF staff member thinks that the presence of staff from international humanitarian organisations helped save many people's lives in Cernovodsk. We had their words voiced up. All the males from 7 up to 60 years old were taken away into the field and they started to mistreat them. Then all the humanitarian organisations present got involved and thanks to that, people didn't perish. That's a concrete case that I know of when the intrusion or involvement of organisations led to a result. I was sent to Sienovodsk by MSF. It was surrounded by a ring of Russian forces. We didn't stand up there directly with a flag saying release them, but I went to the hospital and was told that people were being held in an open field. There were a lot of foreign organisations standing at the border of the village and not being allowed in. They were actually demanding a meeting with the authorities, saying, let us see the commanders of the village, what is happening there and why. In other words, the organisations made a noise and I think that stopped the military from doing whatever they wanted there. On the 11th of July 2001, only days after the news of the massacres broke, the acting commander of the Russian forces in the Caucasus admits that, quote, large-scale crimes had been committed against civilians in Cernovodsk and Asinovskaya. In a statement after the September 11th attacks on the towers of the World Trade Center in New York and the Pentagon in Washington, Vladimir Putin links Russian military operations in Chechnya with the anti-terrorist combat launched by the American government. These events completely changed the landscape for Western tolerance towards Russia. The words of the MSF deputy legal advisor have been voiced up. September 11th didn't help. It silenced the minority of political leaders who had wished Chechnya to remain under scrutiny. There was definitely a before and after September 11th. After September 11th, for instance, French journalists and correspondents in Russia had to fight with their editors to talk about Chechnya. By deploying a lot of propaganda, the Russians have succeeded in winning people over to the view that the Chechen rebellion had connections with Al-Qaeda. 
or at least with fundamental Islamic movements, whereas obviously the majority of the population in Chechnya is Sufi. It worked very well. For a while, the journalists of Le Monde, or Le Figaro in particular, with whom I had very close relationships throughout this time, told me that they had to fight with their editorial offices to get an article published about Chechnya. Anne Fouchard is MSF France's deputy communications director. After Cernovodsk in July 2001, the administrator went into the field to gather testimony from people at the border. I went to Moscow to finalize this work. I remember discussions with the team who felt very lost and trapped by the atmosphere of insecurity and the omnipresent risks of being kidnapped. In fact, after Kenny's abduction, there was an increasing number of incidents targeting other NGOs. We did all that we could to keep close to what we knew directly about what was happening on the ground. Every time we could collect testimony, we did so, but that didn't move many people. The journalists continued courageously to write their articles and rose to the challenge, but there was a desperate hopelessness about it all. This cautious approach creates a dilemma for MSF. Most MSF sections still don't have international staff running programs in Chechnya because of the dangerous security situation, but this also means that there are no non-Chechen staff on the ground to act as eyewitnesses. Many see this as the only way to speak out on the conditions in Chechnya without bias. MSF Holland's Michiel Hoffman explains. Any medical program in Chechnya without the witnessing part doesn't work for me. The witnessing part just based on Caucasus staff does not carry the same legitimacy that it needs to make an impact. Speaking out against the Russian state has very little impact, well simply because it's Russia. And on top of that, you're speaking out on statements made by what is regarded as very biased, almost rebel-loving Chechens. And then the legitimacy of your statements becomes zero. So unless you have international staff in there, then your future plans of witnessing will not be there. Obviously, you would not have a program with international staff permanently present in Chechnya. But that's not the same as not having any international staff in Chechnya ever. So whatever the end program was going to be, it had to be with the possibility to have international staff going into Chechnya so you could have first-hand unbiased witness accounts. From our position in Moscow, you're not saying things about Chechnya unless you're working there. And everybody realized that this was going to be another six months away at least, before we had any type of activity again in Chechnya. By October 2001, MSF sections in the North Caucasus start thinking about doing a survey on the living conditions of displaced people in Ingushetia. The idea is to use the results to lobby the UNHCR and others to provide assistance. Teams begin collecting personal accounts in the Ingush camps not long after. MSF Holland's new director of operations in the North Caucasus travels to Chechnya to speak to MSF Caucasus teams about what they want the organisation to do with the information they gather. Again, their words have been voiced up. On the speaking outside, for decisions like the one to go into Chechnya, we said to ourselves, we can't make compromises here. We're in a crisis situation. We have to go in. And if MSF goes into Chechnya, we can't decide to do it without speaking out. But we should share this conclusion with the Caucasus staff. They're running huge risks. We can't expose them without warning them first. MSF Holland made a huge effort to explain the situation and convince them, saying, sorry, 
but we can't drop this side of MSF, so it's up to you to decide if you want to keep working with us. But that's why we do it. That's what we can do in Chechnya. Dick van der Tak from the Humanitarian Affairs Department went to the field with me and organised a discussion workshop with the Caucasus staff on MSF speaking out. They also discussed it between themselves, and most of them said that MSF hadn't spoken up enough about Chechnya. We're ready to take risks, and we should speak out. With the medical department, Dick van der Tark developed a form for collecting information from patients who were victims of violence in the hospitals we supported. We compiled it all and wrote a big report on the violence in Chechnya. At the end of 2001, MSF holds a photo exhibition in Moscow with pictures taken at the English camps and handouts with the results of the survey. The report finds that the refugees' living conditions are declining as they run out of money. The tents they were given two years ago now show signs of wear and tear, and the number of people unregistered with federal institutions has gone up, meaning that access to work, allowances, and some federal and humanitarian assistance is limited. It's a bleak outlook for the refugees in Ingushetia, and as time goes on, the situation is only getting worse. Next time, life in the North Caucasus is getting more and more violent as the Russian federal authorities make Chechen refugees repatriate and force humanitarian organisations out of Ingushetia. There were no schools nearby, nor doctors, nor free medical checkups in Chechnya. The people who returned to Ingushetia said that there was nothing there, that they were made to return just to show others that people were returning and that the situation was stabilizing. It was all just about image. When colleagues at other organizations are kidnapped in Chechnya, MSF closes down all operations in the country again. With a diminishing international presence in the war zone, MSF is once again faced with dilemmas. Should it continue to speak out about human rights abuses its staff haven't witnessed? How can they help those in need in the region? And how long will it be before one of their own staff is once again held hostage? This MSF Speaking Out podcast is based on an original MSF case study called War Crimes and Politics of Terror in Chechnya, 1994-2004. It's written by Lawrence Binet and is part of the Speaking Out case study series, a project by MSF International. This podcast series is written, produced and mixed by Andrea Rangecroft. Interviews are recorded by Lucy Dearlove. Editorial direction is from Nancy Barrett, Laurence Binet, and Rebecca Golden Timsar. The narrator is Nick Owen. Extracts are read by Didi Bellos and Matthew Wade. The voiceovers are by John Biddle, Christopher Bockman, Lucy Dearlove, Clive Haywood, Alex Vincent, and Richard Westgate. The music is by Lost Harmonies and Peter Sandberg. A special thanks to Anne Fouchard and Mikhail Hoffman. To read the full case study and discover others, please go to our website, msf.org speakingout. Thanks for listening. <laughs>